0: Amen. Turn your Bible to Psalms chapter 57, if you would. Psalms chapter number 57. Continuing our series, praying through. Tonight's topic is praying through vengeance. I so appreciate Brother Mike's message last week. Falling right in line with the series and did a wonderful, wonderful job. And uh, thankful for that. We're going to continue here in Psalms chapter number 57. I want to start by telling you a story About a man by the name of Larry Fuller. He was a decorated Vietnam veteran in 1981 when a jury convicted and sentenced him to 50 years behind bars. He was convicted of aggravated rape. But while Larry sat in a prison cell, others labored to obtain the DNA testing that they believed would reveal the truth about Larry's innocence. Make a long story short, eventually they got their wish and Larry was pronounced innocent, but not until after spending 25 years of his life in prison. I want you to think about that. That is over 9,000 days of his life that were taken from him through a flawed judicial system. Now, now there's nothing really unique about his story. I could have went into more detail, but there's nothing really unique about his story. It's the same thing has happened to many people throughout And by the way, I'll take our judicial system over many judicial systems in the world. But what's unique about his story is his response. It's short. It's concise. And he's quoted as saying this upon being freed from 25 years in prison. I quote, there's no bitterness. This is what life is about. Trial and tribulation. Now, that's shocking to me. Because you would think Larry Fuller would have 25 years of pent up vengeance in his heart. 9,000 days of thinking about what he's going to say. When they put a camera in his face and a mic to his mouth and everybody's listening. And you would think he would say somebody's going to pay. There will be justice. And if we heard him say that, we, we wouldn't condemn him. In my mind, he would be justified. I mean, he was robbed of 25 years of his life, yet Larry Fuller models what it looks like to resist the urge to exact vengeance upon his wrongdoers. Such was the case with David. The backdrop of Psalms 57 is found in 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're still in the segment of David's life where Saul was hunting him. You remember Saul was jealous and, and he was hunting David. He was literally trying to kill David. And in this particular story, in 1 Samuel 24, Saul is in the, the rugged region of Engedi. Gedi. That, that was a mountainous area. It had all kinds of caves. And as he was hunting down David, the king decided to step aside for a minute in this random cave to do what the narrator says, well, to relieve himself. So, I mean, it's like what you think it is. It's... Basically, the cave was an outhouse. It's kind of what they did. It was a convenience store without Twinkies, I guess. And so the guy goes into this random cave. And in the backside of the same cave he chose was David and his men. I mean, that's crazy. You study the region of En and there's not like one cave out of the entire mountain. There's, there's caves everywhere. He could have picked anywhere, and in God's providence, he chose the cave where David and his men are tucked in the back of it. And I I wonder if you could just imagine what's going on as David and his men hear feet shuffling into the cave. Maybe it's an animal. Maybe it's one of Saul's men, and they're no doubt prepared for what they're going to do when somebody comes in in that situation. But one of David's men who's on the lookout sees farther down the cave as the, as the individual's getting closer, it's not an animal, and they recognize it's King Saul? Could you imagine? That he probably ran back to David and said, you're not going to believe this. Saul's out there. And David said, who? Saul's in, the, in this cave? Yeah. What's he doing in here? Well, he's got his robe hiked up. want to see. And so they would peek around the corner and see the king relieving himself. And Saul didn't know that, number one, he was embarrassing himself. Nor did he know that that he was placing himself in danger. You read the story and, and David's loyal men, his mighty men, began to encourage him to go and cut Saul's head off. David, this is a prime opportunity. They even claim that God's will is for you to do this. David, this is is too random to be attributed to anything but God's providence. This is your chance to assume the throne. God's already told you you're going to be the next king. And this is him making the way for that to happen. And so David takes his sword and inches close to Saul. And he gets to the edge of his garment. And I don't know what went through his mind, but he didn't cut his head off. He cut off a corner of his robe. He would later give it to him and prove that, hey, I could have cut your head off. But I didn't. And in that cave that day, David resisted the urge to vindicate himself. Now we're talking about the guy, King Saul, that threw javelins at David's head. We're talking about King Saul that that caused David to jeopardize the relationship with his wife. He had to leave. We're talking about the guy that has had David on the run for months. And David has had to endure cold and dark nights. He's had to defend himself against animals and Saul's men at every turn. And, And with one swing of the sword, vengeance could have been his. And he resisted. The urge. Now, here's why this is impressive to me, church, because to resist vengeful urges is one thing when you have no real opportunity to indulge them. But it's quite another thing when you are handed a prime opportunity for payback. When you're tempted to call it providence and justice and your closest friends are telling you that it is an open door by God, yet you still resist. That's amazing. Now, I know none of us have found ourselves wrongly accused and sentenced to 25 years in prison. We haven't found ourselves in the back of a cave like David did, hunted by King Saul. Here's what we do know, though. Here's what we have felt. On some level, we've all been a victim of some type of injustice or wrongdoing. That means we all know too well the urge to exact vengeance in those situations. Going on close to 15 years in the ministry, which isn't a lot when when you compare me to someone like my dad or something. But I've had enough years now to be able to visit with a lot of people about a lot of situations. And I've talked to people in our own church who have had to endure a high measure of injustice at work. They've been on the wrong side of, of, of workplace politics. They refuse to play the game and they've been passed up for promotion, even demoted, and it was no fault of their own. They said, Pastor, what do I do? What do I say? How do I conduct myself? Talk to people in our church that have had to endure injustice and wrongdoing from their own family members that they trusted. I talk with parents in our church that, 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 that have had adult children that they helped and were generous towards and loved on. Yet those adult children lied to them and used them and they've had to endure the pain of, of their own children slandering them when they stopped helping them talk with people in our church that have been wronged in a business deal by the people they knew and worked for for a long time and trusted for years. They were lied to and taken advantage of and then it was turned around back on them. It was just flat wrong. I talked to people in our church that have had to endure the gossip of another church member. A church member that didn't know all the facts, that rushed to conclusions, that was driven by jealousy or, or whatever the case might be, insecurity and felt the need to talk badly about them. These are just a few situations. There are so many more I could tell you. But the truth is, is that in every one of these situations, there was an internal urge for vengeance. It's just how we're wired. We want to defend ourselves. We want to make things right. We want to have the final word. We want to win. And I found that vengeance comes in all forms, most obviously through anger and wrath. But sometimes it also comes through distancing yourself and and exhibiting the silent treatment. For others, it comes through words and social media posts. It can come through assembling a team of people that will take our side. It can come through manipulation and scheming. Vengeance boils down to this church, taking matters into our own hands. And it's an odd emotion. Because we're convinced in doing so that we're right. And that we're going to devour our wrongdoer. But what ends up happening is at the end, we're the ones that are consumed. So then how do we resist the urge to vindicate ourselves? How do we do it? Well, this is predictable. We pray through it. And I think David's prayer in Psalms 57 is the key to understanding how to pray through vengeance instead of exercising vengeance. Now, you might be sitting in here tonight and you might be thinking, I can't wait till he gets on a topic that applies to my life. Because I'm not mad at anybody right now. And I haven't faced any atrocity lately. I haven't faced any of those other things that he's talked about. When is he going to talk about something that's, well, here's a good thing to do in these situations. Hide the word of God in your heart. So maybe some, and I have no doubt, some are facing this right now. This prayer is going to be immediately applicable in their life. For others, because you live around sinners, you will be wronged. And you will be hurt. And you will be offended. And if you will hide this prayer in your heart, you will know how to respond. It blows my mind that sometimes I am counseling people over something I preached four weeks ago. If you would have just hid this in your heart four weeks ago, I mean, I'm more than willing to help you. But, but you wouldn't be asking me how to make this through because you would have already known I preached on this. Does that make sense? And so I want to say if it doesn't apply to you, I totally understand that. But it will. It will. Three ways that we can pray through vengeance. Number one, turn to God and trust. Notice what David started with in the first verse. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in Thee. He trusted and turned to God for a couple things, right? Here he turned to God for mercy. He knew he needed this character trait of God. He knew he needed mercy because he couldn't produce it in and of himself. And and I I want you to think about this. Because David had been in the vulnerable position to Saul for so long. And now it was Saul that was in the vulnerable position to him. And the only way that he was going to escape this urge for vengeance was if God filled him with mercy. What is mercy? It's withholding what somebody deserves. Question, did Saul deserve to have his head chopped off? Absolutely. Does a boss who passes you up due to politics deserve to be told off? Maybe. It'd feel good anyway. Does an abuser deserve severe and long-term punishment? Yes. Does does the person that lied about you or took advantage of your generosity deserve to to, to be cut off? Yes, but but that's not always your job. It's God's and, and you need to turn to Him for the mercy that you need to personally withhold giving to that person what you think they deserve. God, give me mercy. I'm turning to you for mercy that I don't feel right now. Mercy that I don't have. I need it. And he promises that it's new every morning. Then David turned to God for hope. Look at the last part of verse one. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will... Important. You don't have to bring your situation to an end. It's not up to you. God, you can hope in God to perform vengeance for you, to bring about an end for you, to make things right for you. Reminds me of a story when I was a kid at the old property. Of course, preachers, kids, staff, kids, they basically live at the church half of their life. Such was the case for me. And if you, if for those that, that were familiar with our old property, I was, I was on the back. It would have been the southeast corner of the family center, the gym. And, and it's back where our old Spanish pastor used to live, that old greenhouse over there. And, and it had a backyard and it didn't have a fence Our Spanish pastor didn't live there at the time. We didn't have a Spanish pastor. I was a kid at this time. But but there was this neighborhood boy that, that was in the backyard. And I was playing catch with, I don't remember who, probably my brother. The ball went into that backyard. And I figured because the kid's over there, I could walk into the backyard and grab the ball. So I go into the backyard and I go to grab the ball. And here comes this dog running at me. It's not even a big dog. It's, it's, it's kind of like a Toto looking dog, whatever those things are. And, and it, it's about like this tall. But at that, at that age, I, I wasn't confident enough to kick a dog like I would today. And, and so it was running at me and the thing latched onto my leg and bit me and it broke my skin. And I was bleeding. I started crying, of course. And I go back and you know who I run to? That guy. He was in his office. I knock on his door. He, I, I'm bleeding. I say, Dad, a dog bit me. And, and I'm telling you, he didn't ask questions. He, he didn't see if my leg was OK. He, he got up from the desk. He went with a very fast pace out of his office. I followed him because I knew he was ticked. Who did it? What dog? Where's the dog at? See, that's where I got my, my hatred for four legged pets. And uh, so I watched him. He walked to that backyard. The little boy was still in there, that poor little boy. There was a hockey stick in the backyard. My dad went to that backyard, picked up the hockey stick, and he started swinging at that dog. Can you imagine him doing that? If not, you didn't know him very well. Monica Rick knows all about that life. You tried to bite him one time. He took a hockey stick to you, didn't he? This is the same guy that when when my brother, you know, hit me in his office, my dad put my brother in the figure four and said, here, take this clothes rack, which is upstairs in the baptistry storage area, by the way, I saw it the other day, and hit him over the head with it. That's what the idea is that, that your heavenly father will perform the vengeance for you. That's what it looks like. Like, I just had to go tell my dad. I just had to turn to my father. I knew he had an anger problem. And I leveraged it. (laughs) Listen. Our Heavenly Father can deal with the dog bites of our life. A lot better than we can. It's just hard letting them do it, isn't it? It's hard because in our flesh, we have the perfect plan to get even. In our mind, we have formed the right words to say that just won't make us feel better, but will make them feel worse. We have formulated and typed out the perfect social media posts that will get their attention. We notice that we distance ourselves and give them the silent treatment and ignore them and act indifferent towards them long enough, we'll get under their skin in no time. Yet all of that effort causes more harm than help. Not just to the wrongdoer, but to yourself. So then what was David's trick? Well, in the first part of verse 2 tells us, I will cry unto God most high. He learned to pray through. He said, I'm just going to take it to God. That's my only hope of not taking matters into my own hands. I would say it this way. You resist taking matters into your hands by turning your matters over to God's hand. And notice what they would call God, the Most High. I love this name of God. It's the Hebrew word that means Elohim Elion. That that is God, the supreme ruler, God, the final authority. Do you get the the the, the, the how that ties into letting God handle your situations? Like He's a supreme ruler. He makes the rules. He's the final authority. He will have the last word who is there any other hands that are more capable of dealing with your situations than than Elohim Elyon I mean my dad can whip a four-legged dog pretty easy but my God is the final authority he's the supreme ruler why do I his his feeble creation one out of billions of people in the world that he's created with a spoken word why do I think I can handle it better Than the one that put me together. Yeah. We have to cry out to God. We have to turn to him for mercy. Turn to him for hope. That he will perform it for us. Number two. Talk to God. About the wrongdoer. Now let me tell you why this is so important. Don't miss this next statement. Trusting God to take care of your wrongdoer is essential to you not making matters worse. That's what I just preached about. But talking honestly to God about your wrongdoer is essential for you to not become worse. I want to say it again. Trusting God to take care of your wrongdoer is essential to you not making matters worse. But talking honestly to God about your wrongdoer is essential for you to not become worse. We all have this, uh, this, well, we're hardwired in this way. When something wrong happens to us, we need to tell somebody. Seriously. We are made for community. That's how we know. Like it's not healthy to bottle up these things over and over and over and over. Like I really truly think that God created us that way on purpose. We need to talk about these things. So so I'm not suggesting that the most important thing to do is refuse to talk about it. You just have to be careful to talk to the right person about it. And obviously that right person is God. And if you feel guilty talking to God this way that I'm going to study, that David did about your own then consider this quote by John Kitchen. Too often, he says, wishful thinking takes the place of honest praying. Believing the best in somebody that has wronged you can be an evidence of God's grace, but avoiding the facts is often an indicator of our own weakness. The pressure of polite but dishonest Christianity makes for pretentious praying, and such prayers only perpetuate the status quo. David was honest about his enemies. Look at verse 4. He says, my soul's among lions. In the light, even among them that are set on fire. He admitted that his enemies were were, were like lions that surrounded him. You know the lion is the king of the jungle. The lion is the king of all beasts. I think David used the lion to describe his enemies the most because it's the enemy that has that sense of overwhelming power and, and disabling intimidation. And notice that he said he was among the lions, like he was in the midst of them. I mean, every hiding place David could find was still in the midst of Saul's kingdom. He couldn't escape. Even in a random cave, the dude stopped to go to the bathroom. And I have found that many times those who are enduring injustice or wrongdoing feel like no matter where they go, they can't escape it. They still have to see the person who wronged them on a regular basis. That person feels like a lion to them. Like, are you ever going to go away? Sometimes it's at work they got to see this person. Sometimes it's at church they got to see this person. Hey, sometimes it's at home they got to see this person. Sometimes it's just in a small town. Where you're at Walmart and you see the person. And even if you can escape the wrongdoer physically, So many still feel like the wrongdoer surrounds them mentally and emotionally. They can't stop thinking about it. They can't stop feeling the pain. They literally feel surrounded. Listen, church, this is where talking honestly about your wrongdoers to God really helps you. Because you can only endure being surrounded by lions physically or mentally for so long before you freak out. And do something crazy. David admitted in the rest of verse 4 that his enemies were like soldiers. Who attacked him? He said, "Whose teeth are spears and arrows?" Talking about the sons of men and their tongue, a sharp sword. Now, follow this: spears and arrows in their hands, and the hands of Saul's men. David said, "were kind of like the sharp teeth of an animal." And you know that that, that if one would fight with a spear and arrow, their intention was to kill, not to wound. Daniel was, or David was, was not in a playground. He, he, he was in a battle for his life, but, but just as deadly as their spears and arrows, David said, was their tongue. In other words, the words they would say to David and about David were just as deadly to David as any physical harm they could cause him. Think about this. David was a man of war. He was skilled in weaponry of every kind, hand-to-hand combat. In that kind of situation, David could defend himself easily, hence the bear, the lion, and the giant. Yet here he feels defenseless against the weapons of slander, and backbiting, and gossip, and betrayal, and defamation of character. He couldn't do anything about that. Meet him in the valley, put a sling in his hand, he'll take you down but he couldn't fix the pain he couldn't fight back from the pain of slander and maybe you felt the same way like the majority of your pain has not come by what somebody's done to you but, w- but by what somebody has said to you or about you and if you've been in our bible study series you know the the the, the possibility of the tongue to wound And to inflict pain. In fact, Paul or Solomon says that, that, that the tongue can go down, words can go down to the innermost parts of the belly. That they can pierce us like a sword. So when somebody's defaming your character or slandering your good name or gossiping about your family, that hurts deeply. And then what is your natural inclination? Well, our default response is to talk back to the person. To set the record straight. To answer their hurtful words with hurtful words of our own. Vengeance is our natural inclination. And and while it is sometimes appropriate, and I really believe it is, to set the record straight and to verbally right the wrong in an appropriate way, the point here is to first talk to God about it. Listen, when we've been wounded and attacked by the words of another, the first words out of our mouth ought to be words to the Lord in prayer. Come on, imagine how how much heartache that we would save ourselves, how many arguments would be relieved or lessened if we learned to default to prayer before answering back our critics. Try that in marriage. Boy, that would help. Try that with your children, your teenage children, and your adult children. Try that with your co workers. Try that with siblings. Try that with with the wrongdoers in your life. Learn to default to talking to God about it first. David went on in verse 6 to admit his enemies were like hunters who tracked him. Study with me. Verse 6. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me. Now watch this last phrase. Into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. Now, watch that last phrase. We've already discussed about David's enemies many times are tracking him down. We get that. But then David prays and he writes into the midst thereof the trap they set they are falling into. If listen, here's the application. If we let God handle it, the trap our wrongdoer sets for us will fail and backfire on them. The opposite is true as well. If we don't let God handle it and we take matters into our own hands, we walk straight into their trap. Did anybody watch the debate last night? Did you feel confused? It's like, come on, man, we got to mute mics. I'm not, this has nothing to do with politics. It's a great illustration, though. Because strategists afterwards said that if they would have spent less time interrupting each other. And, and they did say this. They did preface by saying interruption is a, it's a, it, it is, it's like a strategic move. It's profitable, it's good, but you don't interrupt them every word they say. And the strategists were saying, if a certain candidate would have just let the other candidate talk. And not interrupt him every time. Then the other candidate would have actually fallen in his own trap. But instead, he kept having to answer his critic and answer his critic and answer his critic. And he saved his critic by talking back to him. Do you get what I'm saying? This is this is the idea. We try to take matters in our own hands. We try to talk back and and punch back and, 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 and post back and text back. And all the while, here's what we're doing. They put out the bait and they're going just like this. And they got us hooked in the cheek and we don't even know it. We're trying to devour them and they're reeling us in. If we'll just be quiet, go to our prayer closet, pray through it, let the supreme ruler, Elohim Elyon, deal with it. Guess what will happen? He'll take care of it. And a lot of times he'll take care of it by just letting them fall in their own trap. Which begs the question, who do you talk to when you're hurt? Like, what's your default conversation? A true mark of spiritual maturity, listen, is when prayer becomes your first line of defense. How are you doing at that? Here's the third thing we need to discuss. Take responsibility for your response. So so we've talked about talking to God honestly about our enemies. We, We talked about turning to God in trust for mercy and hope that he will bring it to an end. But then the last part of the psalm teaches us this. Take responsibility for your response. Here's what David teaches us in verse 7. That that our response doesn't start with our will. It doesn't start on the outside. It starts with our heart. Our response, our internal response is our responsibility. Look at verse number 7. My heart is fixed, oh God. My heart is fixed. David has prayed through to the point. Where now he, uh, he kind of takes a turn like he does in most of his psalms. His perspective is, 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 is aligning. His heart is fixed. That means it's secured. It's settled. It's established. And it makes sense, doesn't it? In order to respond biblically to being hurt, our hearts are going to have to be in the right place first. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. If we'll get the inner man right, the outside will fall in line. So what should our heart be fixed upon through prayer? What was David's heart fixed upon? What was it set upon that that enabled him to resist the urge for vengeance? Well, verse 7 teaches us that his heart was fixed on praise and worship to God. He says, my heart is fixed. O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Look at verse 8. Awake up my glory. Awake psaltery and heart. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nation. Notice something about David's praise and worship here. He had to make the choice to do it. How do I know? Because he uses the word awake three times. It's an action verb. David had to purposefully awaken himself to worship. The reason why this is so important is because our tendency when we're hurt is to be fixated on our hurt. Be fixated on a wrongdoer and not on the Lord and our relationship with him. But listen, that's how vengeance grows as we feed it and we water it and we fixate upon it. Instead, we have to intentionally awaken our spiritual man to praise and worship the God, our God. We have to like, like David, get up early. Do you hear me? Get up early. Like he's not talking about early in life. He's talking about early in the day. I still contend the most biblical time. To worship and praise your God privately is early in the morning. I got a couple morning birds that think that's okay. I don't think God's rejecting your praise and worship at night. But, but, But David sets a good example over and over, tells us that early will I seek thee. And some people like to escape that. It's not talking about early in the day, it's talking about early in his life. No, it's talking about like when the sun's coming up. I'm not saying you have to be a morning person. I'm not setting a time on it. Here's the principle God ought to be first. That's that's what it does something amazing for you when you start your day off in intentional praise and worship to God. Get in your prayer closet before you go anywhere. Well, you can go get coffee first, but then get to your prayer closet. Grab your Bible, grab your devotional book. David goes on to say, it wasn't just private praise and worship. I praise the Lord among the people. I praise the Lord among the nations. I can't say this enough, but you have to stay plugged into corporate worship. You have to stay connected to the people of God. Even if among these people are people that have hurt you. I'm sorry. I am so sorry I don't pastor a perfect church. I apologize to you for that. But you're going to come to church with people that make you mad. And you're going to have to sing in the choir with somebody that you don't respect. And you're going to have to greet next to somebody. I don't know if it's not your husband or wife, I guess. You're going to have to greet next to somebody or take the offer next to somebody. Or serve in children's church with somebody. Or worship out there with somebody that you don't really agree with on everything. And they might be your wrongdoer. But don't let that keep you at home. Don't let that keep, listen, you don't need church less right now. We need church more and more and more and more. Praise God among the people. It does something for you. No excuses. No excuses. Get to church on Sunday morning. Get to church on Sunday night. Get to church on Wednesday night. Get with the people of God. Don't cherry pick services. Get there every time you can. And watch, watch how it fixes your heart how it establishes your heart. You can overcome vindictiveness and bitterness a lot better in praise and worship to God corporately than you can in your living room. Amen. Amen. The devil will tell us we can't. But he's a liar. Fix your heart upon praise and worship to God and then fix your heart upon God's mercy and truth. We got five minutes. I'm going to preach fast. God's mercy and truth. He, he, he repeats this phrase twice. Once in the, in the verse 3 and once in verse te- verse 10. He says, For thy mercy is great unto the heavens and thy truth unto the clouds. I wonder why David was fixing his heart so much on these character traits or attributes of God. But then I begin to evaluate his actions in 1 Samuel 24. And his actions in that cave of Engedi were actually an overflow of the mercy and truth of God being in his heart. What do I mean? Well, It's only because of God's mercy that he didn't chop off Saul's head. And then when his men, I didn't talk to you about this, but when his men said, David, why didn't you kill him? You know what David told them? God gave him the truth to tell his men, I'm not supposed to touch God's anointed. Go read it in 1 Samuel 24. He he explained to his men this truth. God put King Saul in place and it's God's job, not mine, to dethrone him. I will not touch God's. Man, David was able to respond in the cave that way with mercy and truth because he had fixed his heart on the mercy and truth of God. And it would help us so much in dealing with our wrongdoers to fix our hearts on those two attributes of God. If we will let God fill our hearts with an equal dose of both, it will help us to stay balanced in dealing with the many urges we have to vindicate ourselves. And then lastly, fix your heart on the glory of God. Again, he writes writes this theme twice. In fact, word for word, verse 5, Be be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. And he writes it again in verse 11. When a songwriter repeats word for word something, we got to pay attention to it. He said, I want your glory to mean the most to me. I want it to be above all. You see, so often, now. now follow me. What motivates our desire for vengeance is a desire to win. A desire to be right. A desire to have the last word. But if God's glory will be our main goal, we're guaranteed to win. Follow this. Our circumstances may never change. We may never get the last word here on earth. We may never even get an apology from our wrongdoer. But at the end of the day, if God gets glory from our response, we win. Because that's what we're created to do above all else, is give God glory with our life. David's circumstances hadn't changed. Saul was still after him. David didn't get vengeance. He got a piece of his robe. He didn't get the last word. It's that he prayed through long enough to have his heart fixed more on God than on Saul. Can I say this statement and then we'll wrap it up? You know you prayed through when giving glory to God is more of a goal than getting even. When you are more concerned about God's glory than your victory, then you know the grip of vengeance has been loosened. But if you still wanna win, and you can't stand it if you don't, and the last thing in your mind is God getting glory through your uh, a response, And vengeance still has you in its stronghold. Let me ask you right now in your life, if you're facing a wrongdoing, what is bigger to you right now? The desire to get even or the desire to give God glory? The desire for victory or the desire through your response to exalt the God of heaven? Again, you might not be going through anything related to what I preached about tonight. But if you'll hide away this prayer in your heart, you can pull it out when you need it. Let's review. Psalms 57 prayer. I'm going to invite you to pray it tonight if you need to. Turn to God in trust. It means turn in for mercy, turn in for hope. Talk to God about your wrongdoer. You can accomplish a lot more by talking to God about your critic than talking back to your critic. Take responsibility for your response. It starts with your heart. Fix your heart on praise to God, on God's mercy and truth, on God's glory. Stand to your feet. Let's have a time.